Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Thanksgiving is a complicated holiday. Some see it in a romanticized light, where the pilgrims and the indigenous Americans came together, and held a feast to celebrate the harvest. Some see it as an odd level of pageantry to commemorate genocide. Others perceive it as a holiday largely pushed by President Abraham Lincoln and the following administration after the Civil War as a way to try and unite the country. But ultimately, at the end of the day, putting all of the politics aside, putting all of the altering perceptions aside... There are two facts that I know to be true about Thanksgiving. One, the first proto-Thanksgiving ever celebrated by Americans was in 1621, while the first North American Thanksgiving actually took place in 1578, in Canada. In other words, Canada did it first, and to all the Americans listening, you have been celebrating Thanksgiving in the wrong month of the year. Now, the second thing I know about Thanksgiving is this. Beyond the confusing and contradicting history and its perception, Thanksgiving is undoubtedly one of the deadliest holidays of the year, and there really doesn't seem to be any good reason for that, beyond an overabundant amount of quality family time. One such example of that would be the Thanksgiving Day Massacre of 2009. Paul Marriage grew up as an athletic, charismatic student, In high school, he was well-liked, well-adjusted, never one for violence, instead preferring to take out his abundant youthful energy in the theater performing in such high school performances as Footloose. Throughout high school, Paul even managed to apply his energy and intelligence to maintaining his status as an honor roll student and an active member of the French club. Those accolades later served him well as he was admitted to the University of Miami, where he was also a member of the Honor Students Society. Paul Marriage was on a path of excellence, a path that promised all of the comforts of Western society. But that isn't what life had planned for him. No one knows when, or where, or how or why, but at some point in Paul's life, his mental health began to deteriorate. That's one affliction of the human condition, the mercurial nature of the human mind. And at any given point, you or I could find ourselves in the very same predicament. But in moments like that, each one of us is given a choice. A choice to recognize our own instabilities and shortcomings and to seek help. Or to do what Paul did. Paul did not seek help and unfortunately attempted to take his own life by shooting himself, but was unsuccessful. According to Paul's mother, Carol, Paul was suffering from chronic depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Paul, instead of facing his rising mental health issues head-on, remained isolated and separated from his family for years. 
while he dealt with his hatred and mental health in seclusion, which is what no one should do. It's easy to pull away from society, but then all a person is left with is their own thoughts, echoing and bouncing around in their own mind. Paul remained that way in seclusion, as I said, for years, as his anger festered, as his resentment festered, until Paul's mother Carol and Paul's father invited him to a Thanksgiving dinner. This was the opportunity it seemed everyone had been waiting for. Carol wanted her son back in the family fold. They wanted to help him. Paul had been such a bright young man growing up and... In her mind, it was never too late for Carol to see her son back on that path, or at least working towards it and becoming happy once more. Well, that was priceless. Carla, Paul's sister, on the other hand, was a little more hesitant about it all. For Carla, spending Thanksgiving with Paul was a beast of a different kind. Like Carol, her and Paul's mother, Carla wanted to see Paul back in the family and back working towards happiness, but unlike her mother, Carla also had a restraining order against her brother Paul. Carla had filed a restraining order against her brother only a few years previous, and the reason being is that he had threatened to kill her, and convincingly enough to have Carla fearing for her life. Carla doing her best to set aside her reservations, and Carol doing her best to make it the perfect occasion the family gathered for Thanksgiving dinner at Paul's cousin Muriel Sitton's house, where Muriel's husband Jim and their six-year-old daughter Michaela also lived in Jupiter, Florida. The Thanksgiving dinner was attended by 17 guests, which included Paul. Like all Thanksgiving dinners, I imagine the home was too warm, the breath of a dozen-plus family members laughing and drinking and eating filling the air with condensation. That sort of claustrophobic, dense air that can only be cured by a quickly opened kitchen door and an angry aunt or uncle yelling about heating the entire town. The Thanksgiving dinner itself was as traditional as they come. The secret recipe stuffing, the turkey that's been tenderly cooked and perhaps overcooked for a period of hours, cranberry sauce and gravy and all the other accoutrements. Afterwards, as if straight out of a Hallmark movie, the entirety of the extended family gathered around the grand piano and sung along to Christmas songs as they laughed and drank some more. But the jubilation wouldn't last as long as anyone attending would have hoped for. Paul, who had been calm and serene and seemed to be enjoying everything about the festivities and seemed to be enjoying his family time as well, family time which he had denied himself for so long, suddenly shifted in his mood. Paul became erratic and manic and rushed out of the home, silencing those around him in an awkward and uneasy anticipation. It wasn't long until the 35-year-old Paul returned with a loaded pistol he had grabbed from his car. Paul began executing his own family members, muttering under his breath, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. It was Paul's own twin sisters, which he shot first, Carla and Lisa. Lisa was eight months pregnant at the time. Paul then shot Lisa's husband Patrick in the gut. 
Patrick would survive and later become the witness through which we know this tragic tale. Paul continued his murder spree by shooting his 76-year-old aunt, Raymond, in the shoulder. She began to bleed out as her husband ran to her to apply pressure to the gunshot wound. While her husband's hands were on her, trying to stop the uncontrollable flow of blood. Paul shot her again, hitting her in the chest and killing her. As his act of terror reached its crescendo, Paul entered his niece Michaela's bedroom. Paul was filled with an uncontrollable rage as he leveled the pistol at the sleeping six-year-old. Paul shot her while she was still asleep and tucked in bed killing her. But this wasn't just a sudden outburst of mental instability. This was not a product of a mental illness by itself. This was years of planning and rage and its culmination. A few weeks before Thanksgiving, Paul had spent $2,000 on firearms. When asked by the salesman what the guns were for, Paul had replied that he was going hunting. Paul had also withdrawn $12,000 from his bank account which he had intended to live off while he was on the run. And the depths of his plan were made clear when, after he shot Michaela, he fled his cousin's home and the Thanksgiving dinner and made his way to the Florida Keys, where he had prepared an alias and lodgings. To complicate matters, according to a lawsuit filed by Paul's cousins Muriel and her husband Jim against Paul's parents, no one had informed them Paul would be coming at all. According to them, in the event that they had ever been informed, they would not have allowed Paul to enter the home, as they, along with everyone else in the family, was well aware of his history of mental illness. And Jim and Muriel believed Paul's parents were aware of how his mental health had deteriorated further and knew that he was a threat, but had invited him all the same, desperate to have their son back and being willfully ignorant had reasoned away their common sense. But that wasn't really the case. Paul's mother Carol knew full well that he was possibly a danger to everyone. Paul's mother Carol said to her daughter Lisa just before Paul's arrival, I hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. It took five weeks but eventually authorities caught up with Paul on January 2nd, 2010. The owner of the motel named the Edgewater Lodge that Paul had been living in had seen his face on America's Most Wanted and had called police. Police quickly arrived and apprehended Paul, taking him into custody. It was quickly determined that the state of Florida would seek the death penalty against Paul. But after many delays on setting the date of the trial, which would see the trial date delayed till August 8, 2011, Paul received a plea deal. For pleading guilty to his crimes, Paul received seven consecutive life sentences and narrowly avoided the death penalty. Paul had internalized his feelings of hate and resentment towards his family. It was what he thought was justice, personal justice, that led Paul to killing members of his family, stealing their lives from them. His ultimate goal, though, was not justice, but to steal happiness. He wanted to drag them into the dark where he had lived for so long. Paul never deserved to feel the way he did, to be afflicted with chemicals in his brain that fought him and cast him down at every turn, shackling him in a prison of his own creation. 
But it was Paul's choice not to seek help, not to find a solution to his own misery and to take it out on those he should have loved and cherished. But destruction and chaos is not where the story ends. So let me leave you with a little something to be grateful for this Thanksgiving. Out of the ashes of that Thanksgiving Day massacre in 2009, lives began to rebuild. Muriel and Jim, who had their six-year-old Michaela stolen from them by Paul while she slept in her bed, had conceived another child. Muriel just wanted to be a mother again, not to replace Michaela, but to share her love and feel the love of a child after so much tragedy. And in 2012, they got what they wanted when Natalia Grace was born. And then again, two years later, another child, baby Rayla. And with that, the Sitton family was completed. Muriel's husband, Jim, stated, One morning I woke up and I heard Muriel faintly singing. My ears perked up and she was singing to Natalia, baby Natalia, amazing grace. And at that moment, I was like, wow, we're going to make it. Creep, I know this year is hard on all of us. Some won't or can't see family due to ethical decisions or mandates or what have you. And that's hard. And it's also hard to look beyond the hurt of the now. But if Muriel and Jim can rebuild after having their daughter stolen from them, having members of their family shot in front of their very eyes, maybe things really aren't that bad after all. What do you think? So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.